Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. At the end of every day, I drive through the city of New Haven and cross the bridge that will take me home. I love this part. This is the part where he says my name twice. Unless there are construction delays. What? Currently, there is closure on the Route 34 eastbound ramps to both I-91 and I-95 northbound. Who cares? Why isn't he saying my name? So then, I might take exit 43 and use First Avenue to the alternate northbound ramp. Ah! I feel the words building inside me. I can't stop them or tell you why I say them. Now we're back on track. But as I reach the top of the bridge, these words come to me in a whisper. I say these words as a prayer, as regret, as praise. Here it comes. I say rutabaga, jellyfish. What? Hey, you, in the car. Who's talking? You're supposed to say Wolfenstein, Wolfenstein. Why would I say that? Well, why do you say the other ones? I'm just hoping we have rutabagas for dinner. My wife mashes them with butter, and they're really- Stop talking about your wife. I hate your wife. It's me you're obsessed with. Me, me, me. Uh, if you say so. And why do you say jellyfish? I'm going over water. Maybe I'm thinking about them. How do I know? I'm no psychiatrist. No, I'm a psychiatrist. Oh my god, you're barely following this story. Uh, I have a lot on my mind. No, you have one thing on your mind, and that's me. That's the whole point. Me. The whole point is me. What part of me do you not understand? Don't answer that. I'm too upset. I need to just listen to this show about me. And now he doesn't need people, and he doesn't care. Colin McEnroe. Yes, we are. <laughs> we are. We are doing a show about Barbara Streisand today. I hope that became clear uh, during uh, during the, that intro. So, uh, and it's going to be all about Barbara. And if she's listening, I think she'll enjoy it a lot. Uh, joining us in studio, uh, Jacques Lamar. He is the reason we're doing this. Uh, he is playwright and director of communication and special events at the Mark Twain House and Museum. And if you like Jacques Lamar, you're going to be very happy because he'll be back in <laughs> two days to, <laughs> to do the nose, uh, either through a stroke of a master stroke of planning on my part or some I don't know. Uh, I'm perfectly happy with that. Tracy Moore is also coming back to our studio. She is a singer, associate professor of theater and at the Hart School of Music and the University of Hartford. We felt like we should have a singer. Uh, she's performed in uh, the National Broadway Tours along with Off-Broadway, regional theater productions, and she's the author of Acting the Song, Performance Skills for the Musical Theater. Ha. Uh, joining us by phone is Thomas Santo Pietro, uh, author of five books, including The Importance of Being Barbara and most recently The Sound of Music Story. He spent uh, 25 years as a manager of over 30 Broadway shows. And uh, Jonathan Tolins, he is playwright and author of Buyer and Seller, currently at TheaterWorks through February 14th. That's sort of the main reason we're doing the show. T- Jacques called this to our attention and said, you should do a whole show about Barbara. And it's a great idea. He's also adapting Grease Live uh, for Fox TV on January 31st uh, and is the consulting producer for Braindead. Oh, boy. Um, 
No, there wasn't anything called brain dead. <laughs> that could apply to that could be the title of so many things, actually. Uh, all right, so Barbara Streisand. I mean, she was first and foremost, first and foremost, this great singing talent. But she became so many other things, and in some ways, it's a story about refusing to accept limitations uh, and refusing to be marginalized and re- be refusing to be told that you can't do this, you can't do that uh, because you're a woman, because you're Jewish, because you're not conventionally beautiful. I, I think you could even argue that she. Uh, single-handedly altered, in at least a slight way, our whole attitude about beauty in America. Uh, so, so many things. Uh, but a lot of it does come, I think, from this notion of a person refusing to be boxed in uh, and pushing back and then getting pushed back against her pushing back. And it's turned into a very interesting story. She's 73 years old right now. And so um, we're going to talk about sort of that that enduring uh, quality that she has. But uh, Thomas Santo Pietro, you know, as much as she's fascinating to a lot of people right now, uh, and as much as she does have an enduring, iconic quality, in some ways, it's not quite the same as it was in the 1960s and 1970s, right? I mean, I, I, I'm assuming that's the time when she occupied a real center stage in the American cultural conversation. Oh, I think that's right. Uh, because as you said, she really did change the notions of beauty. Uh, in the country, you know, her talent became beauty. And of course, over the decades, you know, she was a rebel in the 60s. She was she started at the era when Doris Day was the biggest uh, star in the world. And uh, so, you know, time what time does to every rebel is it makes them a part of the establishment. So she's had quite a journey in that way as well. Um, and Jonathan Tolins, I think it is important to sort of sketch out the, the, your play. I was lucky enough to see it in one of its earlier incarnations at the Barrow Street Theater, um, and it 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 deals a little bit more with Streisand as kind of a, a lioness in winter, uh, a little bit later or close to the present in her career, and in the, in this place that I didn't realize existed, this place, this kind of underground world, uh, this subterranean city in her own home. Tell tell us about this. Uh, Sure. Well, for those who don't know, in 2010, uh, Barbara put out a book called My Passion for Design, which was a lavish coffee table book with pictures that she took herself of uh, her estate in in Malibu, which has uh, three buildings on it. And um, one chapter is about the basement under the barn, I believe. Um, And what she's done is instead of having closets or storage rooms, to keep all of her old stuff that she's acquired over the course of her career, um, she created a little shopping mall, um, and it has a cobblestone street, and there is a doll shop and a, an antique shop and a, a, a clothing boutique and a gift shoppy, um, whereas we say in the play <laughs> where they sell extra letter P's and E's, apparently. Um, and she has this little place that she takes friends down to see and it's which uh, she has everything arranged just so in ways that please her and when that book came out i just thought that was a little funny um and so i uh imagined what would happen if someone was hired to work down there and and what was sort of the shopkeeper and what would happen um when barbara like marie antoinette would come down and pretend to shop and that that's where the, the idea came from and, you know, um, Tom Santo Pietro, I mean, this sort of plays in a little bit to one of the there's so many storylines about Barbara Streisand. But one of them, I think, is this 
this sort of permanently wounded person, this person who grew up poor, uh, who didn't maybe get what she needed at the parental level. I think her father died when she was pretty young, uh, maybe didn't get uh, a lot of reinforcement from her mother. Um, that there's sort of this sense that there's this permanent psychic wound that can't be healed. And maybe you get these kinds of uh, extravagant attempts like the one that Jonathan's describing. Well, I think that's right. And I think, uh, you know, uh, she herself admitted that when she made Yentl, it was an attempt to recreate her father on film and uh, because he died when she was one and a half. So there is, for all of her extraordinary success in this overwhelming confidence in some ways, there's still a, a very much a vulnerability about her. And uh, uh, that interests people. And of course, she, you know, it's why outsiders, as I call them, outsiders of all stripes identify with her so much. And so her persona took on, especially in the beginning, this kind of Cinderella myth. And, uh, you know, and yet on another level, she's very aware of that and very savvy about playing with that persona. So she's got about three levels going at the same time. So we don't really think of Jacques Lamar as an outsider, <laughs> but probably at one time you might have thought of yourself as an outsider. Well, you know, I, I became a fan of, of Barbara Streisand's. It, you know, I would actually say, although you said, you know, she was kind of hugely innovative or whatever, you know, or held the cultural landscape in the 60s and 70s. But I think with the 80s, um, you know, that's when she does Yentl, which is her first directing thing. And then the Broadway album, which I think is probably her greatest mm-hmm. single uh recorded work um you know uh, you know I, that was the moment where i kind of keyed into her and it was also the moment where i had that growing awareness of being gay and that kind of sort of outsider thing particularly with yentl i swear i went in not uh not having a sexuality and then i came out and after watching barbara streisand pretend that she's a man and um, looking at mandy patinkin naked i'm like yeah i'm gay Let's play your musical epiphany right now. Okay. All right. This is uh, from uh, a, piece of, a Piece of the Sky. I can hear you. Papa, I can see you. Papa, I can feel you. Papa, Tracy Moore does have some suspicions about that particular clip, but if she says them, the other three guests will walk off the show immediately. Uh. Um, In that clip, you can hear one of the things that makes her uh, such a favorite, um, and also one of the things that makes her fun to write about, is that there's something indomitable about Barbara. Uh, It's one of the reasons why she's actually not really great at singing torch songs. Like, she's not a tragic figure. She's not someone like... Judy Garland or, or Billie Holiday or someone who, who, has, who was self-destructive. Barbara just keeps going and getting what she wants, and there's that strength um, and uh, uh, that, that I think is also appealing to her outsider fans. Well, I think there's also, um, and, and actually, Tracy, uh, in a serious, serious way, I'll have you speak to this. There, there's something about often about her vocal attack and, and about the production that goes behind it and stuff like that, that too much is never enough, right? That, that whatever it is, it could be taken to the next level, so let's try that. 
I think she's uh, a fabulous vocalist, and she obviously takes a lot of time in the studio and probably has the same um, attention to detail there that she does for her films. You know, you can imagine her being painstaking about the details. Um, It's an incredible instrument, and she does so many things right as a singer. Um, my, My thoughts on that last note, it is kind of an inhuman extension of sound and um, <laughs> uh, it, it's entirely possible that that it could be uh, looped, in other words. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I don't know for sure. That's a total guess. It could be. She's just that amazing. I would I would be willing to accept that. And Jacques, what does it matter if it is looped? I mean, this is about creating illusion. I mean, entertainment is about creating an illusion. But I mean, there's also that the fact that she's kind of superhuman in that way. I like to prefer to think that she, you know, and and Tom can correct me if I'm wrong, like 10 years earlier she did the same thing on Barbra Streisand and other musical instruments where she hits this note on a I Got Rhythm and it just goes on for days and you can leave the room and you come back in and she's still <laughs> singing that one note. So, you know, I, uh, I mean, it's part of that, you know, she's better than than most. So. You gotta you gotta have faith. And you know, Jonathan, that sense also of 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 kind of abundance or overabundance. I mean, that's sort of there in the play, that's there in the milieu that you're kind of describing too. That it's like let's build the castle and then let's build a castle underneath the castle and let's build a castle alongside and there's there, she kind of does that with everything. Right. Well, one of the things that the play is about, and this isn't just uh, specific uh, specific to Barbara, I think it's of all people who reach that incredible level of fame, not that anyone else has her level of fame, but um, is there is this need and uh, the wound that you talked about earlier, the, the sense that nothing is ever enough. Um, in fact, one of the things that's funny in, in her singing is that often she does these riffs where she's taking the vocal line in all different places. And there's a, a great joke that uh, Gerard Alessandrini put in uh, Forbidden Broadway, uh, his show, where uh, in the parody of the Broadway album, and she's singing to the tune of uh, 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 On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. She sings, Tell Dick Rogers, Some Enchanted Evening's Fixed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that... Barbara's attention will improve everything it touches. Well, Jonathan, the, I, one of the many questions about Barbara Streisand, or I'll put it another way, the, the American public will forgive you for all kinds of things, but it won't forgive you for not having a sense of humor about yourself. And so either you either have to have one or you have to fake having one. And, and I think one of the raps against her, whether it's ever articulated this way or not, is that you know, that she's different from Bette Midler. She's different from Lady Gaga in the sense that she takes all of this very, very seriously. There isn't any camp and there isn't a sense of humor and that maybe she'll invite Mike Myers to be in her audience and pretend to be Linda Richmond and then bring Linda Richmond up on stage and kind of play around with that. But it feels as though she's been coached into doing that. Um, right. I, I couldn't have written up this play about someone like Bette Midler who would always seem in on the joke. Mm-hmm. It's weird because, you know, her her first major successes were in musical comedy. And all, although, I mean, there's a degree of pathos, obviously, to, to Funny Girl, ultimately. But, I mean, she's playing Fanny Bryce, who was notoriously funny. And when you look at her films like What's Up, Doc, where she's, uh, you know, she's very funny, although Madeline Kahn's funnier in that movie. Uh, you know, it's it is funny that she is kind of humorless about herself Mm -hmm. and watching her recent interview with Jimmy Fallon I was like you know she turns around starts kind of interviewing him but she's really a bit joyless Mm. which was 
surprising. And so many well, of her early minute. songs Hold were comic. Let's just talk about why she started interviewing him. <laughs> okay. okay. That was because Barbara, whenever she goes on television, she f- prefers one side. To be <laughs> oh, that's true. So side. when she went on Rosie O'Donnell's show years ago, they actually rebuilt the set to reverse it. <laughs> <laughs> and Rosie O'Donnell had to say, "Well, we just felt like doing things differently today." All right, and then for Jimmy, for, but Jimmy Fallon didn't. They didn't build a new set, but they had this little ploy where she was going to let get to interview him, so she got to sit on the side that she preferred. But she wasn't even fun, you know. No. That was the thing that kind of killed me. And I, you know, I keep waiting for, uh, because so much of her her most recent work is really, you know, other than the you know Meet the Fockers and whatnot. Is, uh, which are you know kind of I think beneath her uh, at this point in her career, but I mean the the musical output's not interesting to me. I don't know if if the other guests agree, but well, before we get to that too, I mean Tom, one question that I have is so this is a young woman who comes up and sh- she gets her first attention attention in places like the Lion, right, with these gay clubs where she, I mean, no surprise that she's a gay icon. There's a lot of reasons for that. But one reason is that was really her first audience. And I just assume playing in those places, the fact that she could do it as a diva, could do it with drama, uh, had just incredible an incredible instrument was important. But I, I have a hard time believing that she didn't have some kind of kitschy, campy thing to go with that. Do we know anything about what she was like sort of pre-61? Well, I think, it, you know, it, what's happened is her persona has changed so much because of the level of stardom that she's achieved, which... I think is really only paralleled by Sinatra, the only person I'm more obsessed with than I am with Barbara. <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, I just got a, uh, it's a quasi bootleg recording of her back at her very, very beginning in the 60s. And she was wild on the stage. I mean, the patter's hilarious. She's funny. She has a self-deprecating sense of humor. So you really measured against uh, what you were just saying. You see the distance she's traveled in terms of her self-seriousness over 30, 40 years. Um, Jonathan, has Barbara Streisand ever seen Buyer and Seller? No, she has not. Hmm. Um, she's been asked about it several times, and there were there was uh, – there was talk that she was going to arrange to come see it when we were doing the show at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles, but uh, ultimately she decided not to see it. And, and, and I'm fine with that. I yeah. think it would be weird for her. It will be. Say why you think it would be weird, weird for her. I mean, this is the play kind of explores kind of maybe the two personae of hers that we're the most familiar with or the, that we suspect we know about. Well, I think it would be weird because the show actually. I tried to not write a show that was not just a cheap shot or just jokes about Barbara. I really tried to imagine what it would be like to be her and what 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 does it say about a person who builds a shopping mall in their basement. Um, and and in, in the show, she has a, a relationship with this young gay actor who gets hired to work for her. Uh, and you feel the um, a sense of loneliness and a need to connect with other people, which is hard to do when you're the most famous person on the planet, pretty much. And, and everywhere you go, you are swarmed. Um, 
So I think that that would be a little, it would be awkward for her. Also, in addition to that, because I didn't want to write just a play that would seem like a a puff piece or a love letter, there is a character in the play named Barry, who is the main character's boyfriend, who brings up all of the criticism that has been leveled against Barbara throughout her career. And the play ultimately sides against Barry and against that cynicism and actually ultimately sides with sort of this celebration of, yes, she may be humorless sometimes and she she may be crazy, but she's this extraordinary talent and has done wonderful things. Um, but if you're Barbara sitting in the theater having to listen to some of that stuff um, with the audience around you laughing, uh, might be un- uh, uncomfortable. And Jacques, isn't that part of being a Barbara fan? Is maybe it's almost part of the uh, kind of a sub hobby that goes along with it is playing ping pong with those people like Barry, whacking the ball back over at people who want to take a shot at her. Um. Yeah, I mean the thing is, there are people who don't like her, and and it it's like anything though when you get into a debate whether or not it's with people over you know is Star Wars better than you know than uh, than Star Trek or what have you. You're gonna get your your Midler fans versus your Streisand fans, or you know who's better, Barbara Streisand or Judy Garland or what have you. And it's just you know it, it's kind of a, a futile effort, but. Um, I think the more interesting ones are when you start arguing about which period was better for her for her career. Well, I think also, and, and Tracy, you might be able to speak to this too. That one of the one of the ways in which I think she's edgy and she makes people edgy is that constant notion of transcendence. I I mean, you know, uh, Tom mentioned Frank Sinatra, who's the uh, other obvious parallel to this. Sinatra at a certain point said, "You know, I'm not just a singer. You know, I'm more than just a singer. Uh, I'm going to be a movie star. I'm going to I'm going to win an Oscar. I'm going to you know, uh, even if somebody's you have to put a horse head in somebody's bed. I'm going to be uh, right. I'm, I think it's it's interesting also that Barbara, at least in her early years, really thought of herself as an actress and really initially trained as an actress and wanted to be thought of as an actress. And it wasn't until she started to sing that all of a sudden people started to view her in this other light. But she herself thought of herself first as an actress. Um, you actually can you watch the, the trajectory of show business through that period with Sinatra and then Streisand about going where the power was because crooners were the center of entertainment, and then Sinatra wanted to be a movie star because that's where it was, and ultimately Barbara wanted to be a movie director because that's where the power was at that time. Uh, and so she did. All right, we're going to take a little break. Um, uh, I do want to uh, encourage people to explore and visit uh, Jonathan Tolan's play and his exploration of Barbara Streisand's world. It's playing at Theater Works right now through Valentine's Day, appropriately enough. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. talk a little bit about singing or singing specifically we're talking about Barbara Streisand uh, today and we do have Tracy Moore here who who teaches that kind of thing and does that kind of thing so Tracy one of the things 
One of the realities, I think, of singing and singing superstars is that everybody winds up wanting to sound like them when, in fact, the reality is that they break the rules and only they can break the rules the way that they're breaking the rules, right? If you're a, a jazz singer and you try to sing like Sinatra, your jazz teacher right away is going to say, stop that, stop that. He can do that. Right. You can't do that. Stop doing that. Right. And, and that Streisand really is breaking a lot of the rules, maybe starting with you know, the one of the basic rules of cabaret is kind of don't get in the way of the music. But she's very much, I mean, a lot of her vocal performances are kind of about the fact that she's doing them. Yeah. I, I actually played a role called Friend of Barbara in an off-Broadway show called I Will Come Back. Uh, it had some original music by Timothy Gray. Um, but um, the idea was, uh, the premise was... Um, the show was basically a Judy Garland retrospective, and they couldn't get Barbara, so they got friend of Barbara, and that was me. So I spent a lot of time um, studying the way she sang because I had to do the the iconic duet with the Judy Garland character, the Get Happy, Happy Days. Um, and uh, she does have such a terrific sense of phrasing, which is something I think she has in common with Sinatra. The thing is, Vocally, she does so many things right. She's really not breaking any rules in terms of vocal technique. Her voice is spectacularly placed, and the way she uses the breath is tremendous. But I will agree with you that she does sometimes get, if you want to say, in the way of the music. I think one of my quibbles with Barbara has always been that I I, I don't always like her musical taste, the songs that she chooses to sing. Um, and I think maybe part of that may be... Um, that she has to pick material that will allow her voice to be the main course, so to speak, um, rather than Sinatra, who in some times you can think of him as pairing with those fabulous arrangements in a more collaborative way. Um, so she doesn't really do anything wrong. She's terrific and spectacular in terms of phrasing and control and all of that, and her pitch is really flawless. She has got terrific intonation. You know, let's talk about that musical taste question, because, Jacques, one of the things you said in the previous segment is one of the more collegial and friendly debates that you can have is the different periods of Barbara Streisand. And in that sense, there's no one thing that is her musical taste. I mean, she's been through, and, and Tom can maybe guide us even more explicitly through this, but he's been, she's been through a series of evolutions trending back in 85, as you said, towards show tunes and American standards after a lot of contemporarily composed stuff that might have seemed a little, seemed a little treacly to some of us. Well, you know, and if you look, I think most people will say that the 60s was, you know, musically her best period in terms of her voice was an amazing out-of-the-box instrument. She was doing mostly standards. And uh, the fact that she was able to transition in the 70s into doing pop music and the, you know, the Guilty album and uh, Stony End and stuff like that, you know, people probably never would have thought that she would have made it out of being a cabaret or Broadway singer. So for her to be able to transition... And then in in the 80s, for her to go back and do Broadway music, she was kind of trying to – I think that's where she, you know, would, would kind of waver. She would do kind of sludgy pop and then, uh, and then interesting projects. So, uh, you know, I think that her career has been kind of a bit of a mixed bag in recent years in terms of singing stuff that – you know, maybe uh, like her most recent album, I think, is is really boring. Her duets album, partners, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, she's just going back and doing old material, and it's you know, it's straight and out the of the arrangements are not particularly spectacular. No, and it's straight out of the Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, you know, uh, 
end of career, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, playbook. Well, Tom, one of the things that she did initially, um, you know, and I do think that if you're going to be a superstar, you better master the medium of the moment or even the kind of the subgenre of the moment. And one of the things that she mastered pretty early on was the television special in the 1960s where the television special was such a big thing so that even the albums she released, I think, if I understand this correctly, in the 1960s were in some ways outgrowths of these incredibly popular TV specials. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was (laughs) she is so smart about all of that uh, because, you know, it was like with her television specials. It was Barbara Television before there was MTV. It was BTV. And, you know, she broke all those rules, and she said, oh, you know, these specials usually are about the star and then has three guest stars. Not for me. I'm the only person on screen for the hour. And we're going to have two albums coming out of this television special. So, you know, there was this extraordinary cross-pollination going on. And uh, uh, just to add one other thing to that discussion about the recent work, you know, what interests me so much is, not as much, oh, the 60s, maybe late 60s, better than early 60s. It's that kind of, I call it my American studies approach. She's 73 years old. She sings standards, and she just had the number one CD in the country. It's unbelievable. That would never happen with anybody else. So to have, you know, the number one CD for six consecutive decades, uh, a record I suspect will never be broken in our disposable pop world today. That's what interests me so much and how, through force of will, she makes that happen. You know, I want to talk about something that uh, one of the places I think the tension surfaces. And so, Tracy, in the 60s and 70s, I mean, American popular music is going through this transformation. And uh, there's this kind of notion within the world of rock and roll and then the singer-songwriter revolution that follows the early days of rock and roll that artifice is to be stripped away and that production is to be simplified and that rawness is valued over polish. Um, and, And there's a kind of sense of, you know, getting to the truth of things and maybe people writing the songs that they perform. And so she's swimming against that tide, um, sometimes unsuccessfully, but mostly able to flourish and and thrive in an era where every musical trend seemed to be working against her. Yeah, she did kind of maintain those big orchestral arrangements, and she's singing um, in her style. But I would say, in my opinion, that um, she is authentically herself and there is a, a a polish and at the same time a rawness to her vocals in the sense that there's some um, there's a genuine quality there. There may be an emotionality there that so she is in some ways being as authentic and stripped away as she can be. Although the accoutrement, you know, the orchestration and all that stuff remains very, to use the Yiddish term, schmaltzy. Um, I, I just let's give an example of this um, of particularly her trying to master the pop idiom and actually having, as Jacques suggested, a pretty big hit with this. This is a Laura Nero tune. It's called "Stony End." Uh, let's hear what it sounded like.
So, if you love Barbara Streisand, well, Jacques was beginning to boogie right there in his seat. If you love Barbara <laughs> Streisand, then this is sort of great. You know, I have to say to my ears at this time, this I, I first of all couldn't even get really what the song was. There was so much. Uh, first of all, it's overproduced, and second of all, it really kind of this is everything getting in the way of the Laura Nero melody. I, this is a horribly unfair thing to do. I'm just going to play a little bit of a different singer, very obscure singer, Beth Nielsen Chapman, singing in the, singing a little bit of this song. Same song. So, Tracy, you know, one thing that Johnny Mercer told vocalist uh, was before you sing a song, write down the lyrics in longhand, particularly if they're Johnny Mercer lyrics, um, so that you really you grasp it. You make it your own. And and Streisand can really do that at times. You know, there are some of these highly emotive songs that she absolutely makes her own and she feels it feels as though she has a tremendous emotional connection to. But that to me, sounds like somebody just gave her that piece of material to sing and then some producer walked her through the paces. Uh, and it just it, it feels like the song is being destroyed somehow. <laughs> yeah, I actually have my students do that as well, writing out the lyrics. Uh, I think it's some a question of whether or not you're going to put lyrics first or, or notes first. Um, you can argue that that's one of the main differences between, for example, opera and music theater, is that in opera, the notes drive the... the um, the vehicle and in music theater the words are driving the vehicle so i i mean i love both those versions and depending on what i needed uh balm for my soul i would pick one or the other depending on what i needed so i think there's room room for both i'm not going to disagree though she was definitely swimming against the current when it came to what was happening popularly but to quote Thomas, you know, she's still got the number one album. So what are you going to do? Well, I want to talk about what, what she does do really well when she does. It seems to me, and I think this, I want to talk a little bit about why she's a gay icon. Um, and so I was trying to think about this. And um, and it seems to me that gay icons um, either have a big secret or no secrets. Uh, like big secret, like Betty Davis in Dark Victory. Or, or no secrets, symbolically, like. Barbara Streisand, who in the sense when she's singing a song, she puts it all out there so much that you feel as though she is sharing with you everything that you've got. Um, and, and when you think about what gay life was in the 60s and 70s, where you did have secrets, you couldn't share your emotional life. I, I, Jacques, I'm talking about uh, about this like I lived it. I didn't, obviously. But I, I'm, I'm wondering. <laughs> it's OK. You can come out. <laughs> all right. OK. It has to happen sooner or later. It's a safe space. Yeah, so uh, I wonder if that's part of it, though. It's like. This is somebody who's unafraid of connecting to her emotions uh, and, and singing in the 60s and 70s to a subculture that wasn't always free to connect to its emotions. Well, she says, you know, uh, and I think this comes out of what Tracy said earlier, that, you know, she trained as an actor. And she said that she loves acting songs. You know, for her, she sees songs as she, she she says that she gravitates towards songs that have a beginning, a middle and an end and that she's storytelling when she's singing. So I think um, – you know, uh, a there's an emotional journey to the songs, um, but B, I think, um, you know that uh, especially the the early stuff where there was just um, 
such a wide variety. She was being funny and she was being I mean, I know that she may not be the best torch singer, but there were torchy songs like Cry Me a River that she was doing at the beginning. And and so I think that that uh, and she had this weird sense of glamour and kookiness and. I don't know. It's I don't know if, if the other guys want to jump in on why they think this is the if case. If I but. could just add one quick thing, I don't. I never thought of Barbara as a particularly emotional performer. It's just that for me, the voice evoked emotion in me. I had an emotional response to what I was mm-hmm. hearing. It's not like she gets up there and and cries. And even in her interview, she's very guarded. This is not someone who's kind of letting it all out for the world to see. Tom, do you want to uh, jump in on this conversation? I, I'm sorry. Was that directed at me? Yeah, yeah. I was. I was wondering whether, uh, particularly that sort of notion. I mean, it is interesting even to speculate why she connects with who she connects with. Well, well I think you know. To me, uh, this is sort of a. I'm, I'm answering the question, but uh, slightly parallel. Uh, when you raise the issue of uh, gay icon, I, I think the role these divas play. It's very interesting how it kind of parallels the in a way, the evolution of uh, uh, gay life in America, because, you know, Barbara's predecessor as a gay icon was Judy Garland, and then it became Barbara, and then it became Madonna, and then it became Lady Gaga. So, and you can see the change, you know, with Judy Garland, it was about, you know, she had such unhappiness in her life, and there was such closeted gay life, and then it was Barbara who was the first to really... Uh, you know, demand a place at the table. And of course, in Barbara's case said, I'll set the table and cook the whole meal as well. (laughs) And then, uh, you know, with Madonna, that change in persona. So that's what interests me about that evolution. Um, That's, uh, I think, absolutely the case. And but and maybe this sets us up uh, as we head into our uh, final segment. I mean, I was reminded this weekend I was down at Goodspeed where they are getting ready to do a, a sort of a bio musical about Judy Garland. And one of the differences is that Judy Garland's father uh, was a closeted gay man and that Judy Garland occasionally either on purpose or by accident married gay men. Whereas with Barbara, that seems to be uh, she's lived her life uh, a little bit differently. So uh, actually, why don't we take a, a break? We'll come back because we've got to talk about the men. Come on. We've got to talk about the men. Uh, Thomas Santopietro will help us with that. So will Tracy Moore and Jacques Lamar. And here's some real emotive singing. I was always certain love would grow Love ageless and ever How far would I travel To be I'm 
All right, that is Barbara Streisand singing with her son, uh, Jason Gold, her son by her first marriage. Uh, that was to Elliot Gold. So we're right where we want to be. We're kind of in the area of Barbara and men. But first, um, Thomas Santo uh, Pietro, I just want to just do a couple of other biographical things. The, 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 getting ready for the show, I, I read some things that completely blew my mind. She went to high school with Neil Diamond and Bobby Fischer and had a crush on Bobby Fischer. Do we believe this to be the case? It's absolutely true, and makes me smile every time I think about Barbara Streisand and Bobby Fischer. And uh, so, you know, when she uh, did the duet, uh, You Don't Bring Me Flowers with Neil Diamond, it's like they had come full circle back to Erasmus Hall High School. That is just incredible. I mean, the whole thing is incredible. Yeah, I read that she, uh, for one year when she was 16 and he was 15, she had lunch with Bobby Fischer every day at school. <laughs> 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 that, that, I could have told her, was not going to work out. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, two misfits, they, their antenna were up. They right. knew that each was uh, really far out there. Um, so this uh, duet with uh, Jason Gould, uh, who is the son of Barbara and Elliot Gould. Elliot Gould, of course, uh, she met in, uh, what, I Can Get It For You Wholesale? Is that what it was? And and he became her her first husband. Um, what, what can you tell us about her relationship with her son? Is this the fact that they're doing a duet significant in some way? I assume it is. Well, I think the important thing about the relationship, her relationship with Jason is that she always makes a point of being incredibly supportive in public and in private about what he's doing. And I think it's really to counteract, or or she wanted to do the opposite of her relationship with her mother, who was always saying things to her like, you know, you're too skinny to be a singer, you, you don't have the right looks, um, you should be a typist. So I think she really wanted to counteract that and uh, always be supportive. And I think they actually have a pretty good relationship. So um, I'm going to ask you about this, uh, Tom, but I'll also I would guess Jacques will have a few things to say about this. I mean, part of part of the Barbara Streisand story is this kind of really kind of interesting sequence of men ranging from Elliot Gould to I'll probably miss a few. But, yes, we mentioned Don Johnson during those uh, during the the credits and Andre Agassi and, of course, Josh Brolin and Bill Clinton. No, just kidding. Although we can we can talk about that one. Uh, John Peters. John Peters. Oh, yeah. yeah. So so there are I don't know. I mean, maybe you can just say a little bit about this, that part of the journey that she's on in terms of the art that she creates, as is the case with so many celebrated uh, entertainers and romantic figures, is paralleled by a pretty strong interest that people have in her love life. Oh, I, I think absolutely. And and particularly in her, and you know, the the archetype of that for her, of course, is the way we were with, you know, Robert Redford, the ultimate golden boy. And I think what you have with Barbara is the parallel between that in private life, really wanting to be the attractive girl and attracting this strain. And let's not forget Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada, you know, all these extraordinarily handsome and accomplished men. The first Prime Minister Trudeau. She's not a cougar. She's not a cougar. She's not going after this one. And then, of course, that became really her biggest archetype of all her films, because when you think about it, whether it's Funny Girl or The Way We Were or The Mirror Has Two Faces, it's all about the quote-unquote unattractive girl getting the great-looking guy, and it follows him to the point just about 15, 10 minutes before the end of the film where he kind of hits himself in the forehead and says, oh, but you are beautiful. 
And, you know, it's always she's still working at that. And that really interests me, uh, you know, at the age she's at. And, of course, what it really the message is, is that, uh, you know, in her case, talent is beauty. Jacques, how does the Streisand soap opera work for you? Is that part of the appeal? Yeah, I mean, the it, it it reaches probably its sort of demented apex with Mirror Has Two Faces, especially when she's forcing Lauren Bacall to basically say, you are the pretty one <laughs> uh, to her. Um, you know, it's uh, and, and she gets a makeover from being Jalubi to Barbara Streisand. So, uh, it, you know, it, it is something to to kind of uh, interesting to watch. And I think that the way we were is is kind of interesting because it does have that sort of ugly duckling captures the golden boy, but also is probably the most, and Tom may agree or disagree, uh, I mean, you can look it up at the sandbox, but also kind of captures her political, because um, she's a very political creature too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have this, this character that's very deeply principled who also manages to get the gorgeous guy. And let's, uh, we'll try to finish a little bit with the political part, but um, before we do that, Tracy, one of the things that I was thinking about, too, is it's all, there's always an interesting question with singers. We kind of want to know who they're singing about or what they're singing about, and we kind of don't, all right? So there's, you know, I'm just gay enough so that when Bernadette Peters is singing Not a Day Goes By, and I know it's about her husband who died like in a helicopter crash or something like that, you know, I mean, and she's weeping, and I'm weeping, and, and just so knowing the subtext is at that point... I think probably enriches my enjoyment of the song. But with Streisand, I mean, there's just so much focus on her. Uh, you you wonder, although I guess when we listen to her music, we don't necessarily think of any particular guy. I don't, but um, I know what you're talking about, that personalization where you really feel like you're getting a glimpse into what's really happening with that the singer that can be very exciting. I'm always struck by um, the parallels in, in Barbara's life to, to some of the shows. Like if you look at Funny Girl, you know, the mother is not completely supportive in that and she wants the guy who's kind of this roué. And it's almost a trope in music theater that um, you have these people seeking this approval and acceptance from mothers. You've got Gypsy, which is sort of similar in that regard. And then you think about Sondheim's life and the awful things that his mother has said to him about, I wish you were never born. And I mean, it's um, it's just interesting to think about how much of Barbara's life is, uh, you know, is uh, a trope almost in some ways. My, mo- my mother, who drove me very hard, used to tell me that Norman Mailer's mother drove him hard, too, <laughs> and that I should be grateful <laughs> for the psychological torture she was inflicting on me. Uh, so maybe th- there's that. Tom, not for nothing, but she, I think her latest publicly discussed project is a, sort of a biopic of Catherine the Great, who also kind of, you know, had parents who didn't really give her everything she needed. Uh. <laughs> I, I know. It's, like, it's such an interesting idea to me. And, and the rumors I've heard, but, you know, it's still at the rumor stages that they're talking about that Barbara would be directing Kate Blanchett. So that's mm. a really interesting idea. And uh, I, just to throw one other comment in, I, going back to Jonathan's play, um, because I think it's a Jonathan. It's a really good play, and I really enjoyed it. And I, I think one of the things he hit on that's so ingenious is that by using, you know, the whole idea of Barbara with this mall in her basement, you realize that her obsessiveness is the source of her greatness as an artist, mm-hmm. and it's also what makes her 
a little bit crazy and frustrating to be a fan of, but it all melds together. So, uh, you know, using that device in the play, which is funny and touching, I think is a really good one. Jacques, did she sleep with Clinton? Did oh no 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 no! no. <laughs> I thought if I asked it really point blank, you know me about you. I don't think so, Tom. Do you think so? Well, I couldn't hear the first oh, part. Oh, did of she that. have an affair with Bill Clinton? I mean, I wasn't really a serious question. Although it's something <laughs> that comes up a lot. I mean, if you read tabloids and stuff like that, there's even this idea that she's that her praise for Hillary Clinton's candidacy has been fainter than it could have been because they're uneasy with one another because, uh, like everybody else that Bill Clinton ever met. Uh, well, don't forget, while we're on that subject, then you you can throw in, you know, there were all the rumors about Prince Charles and when she did the concerts in London and sang, someday my prince will come. It's a, you know, Trudeau, throw out all, you can throw in any of the politicians. I'd say tongue, pretty much everybody, really. There has been some rumor of a, there's been rumor of a, um, uh, that she's writing a book. Is that, does anyone know if that's oh, she accurate? Is. I mean, it's uh, contracted and it's coming out in 2017. All right. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, uh, Thomas Santo Pietro. Uh, while you're waiting for that book to come out, you can read The Importance of Being Barbara by Thomas Santo Pietro. And thank you very much, Tracy Moore, uh, for your expertise about singing. Oh, this is, by the way, her singing that song. She's singing A Sleep and Bee. This is the first performance ever on television on The Jack Parr Show, guest hosted by Orson Bean. Jacques Lamar is the Orson Bean of Hartford. Uh, and here's Barbara singing on TV. The ground when my one true love I has Papa, can you hear me? Papa? Dad? Are you there? Can you hear me? Yeah, but you're coming in and out. Of your life? What? No, the the reception. I miss the way we were before cell phones.